0: Genesis 9, verse 18. Genesis 9:18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And we're going to talk about that more on Wednesday night. When you get into Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11, you discover some amazing things about the population of the earth, especially chapter 10. It's been called the Table of Nations, and you can actually trace lineage in Genesis chapter 10. You can see where different people groups come from. We'll also discuss something Wednesday night that's fascinating, having to do with race. You may or may not be aware of this, but the Bible never deals with the issue of race. Race is not something that's discussed or taught even in the Bible. Race is a somewhat new term in our world, but that's for another time. Genesis chapter 9 verse 20 tells us that Noah, this is after the flood, after the ark, he's out of the ark now. Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. We all need covering. We all need covering. Since Adam and Eve first took that bite of the fruit, that first bite of rebellion in the garden, and became aware and ashamed of their nakedness, mankind has needed a covering. Think back, if you will, in the Genesis story, several different points of interest regarding people needing a covering. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve... The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why? Because they needed a covering. Because they had sinned and in that sin become aware of their nakedness, aware of shame for the first time. And God, being a loving Father, provides them with covering. Genesis chapter 6 verse 14. Immediately before the flood of judgment, God said to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And you shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, some of you know that word pitch is very interesting, because it's only translated pitch here in the Old Testament in this one place. Every other time you see this Hebrew word, it's translated something else. The Hebrew word is kafar, translated pitch in Genesis chapter 6, it's translated atonement everywhere else in Genesis, everywhere else actually in the Old Testament. The word for atonement is the same word for that pitch, that that covering that went over and around and inside the ark to keep judgment out. That's what covering does. That's what atonement does for us. It covers us in, same, in the same way the pitch covered the ark. Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. In a word picture of great security, and I love this, listen to this. It tells us as Noah and his family were entering into the ark, the words, listen closely, those that entered male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded, and the Lord closed behind him. I love the picture there. It's not just God slamming the door shut as he's on his way off to start the flood. It's the Lord closed behind him. Most translations say the Lord closed it behind him, referring to the door, but the word it is is not even implied. The Lord closed behind him. The Lord comes in and closes in and provides covering against judgment for his people. That's very cool. Well, we all need covering. Without it, we're exposed, we're naked, we're vulnerable and frail. Let me give you another verse out of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 tells us there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open, literally naked, and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, this word laid bare is very interesting. Paul in writing, or whoever wrote Hebrews, I think it was Paul, says that all things are open, all things are naked and laid bare before the Lord. Well, that phrase laid bare is a hunter's term. It has to do with skinning an animal, an animal that is skinned and cut open and laid bare. All, all the insides are showing. And that's the reality that, that we all live in. I mean, if, if it makes you a little uncomfortable, that's, that's good just for a moment here this morning that we are all naked and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That phrase laid bare also has another interesting meaning. It's another interesting use to it. What they used to do with criminals who were taken into trial was they would take a knife and lash it to the criminal's chest so the knife was pointing straight up to his throat or right, right beneath his chin like this. So that the criminal, in trial, when faced by his accusers, could not look down without skewering his chin. He had to sit there and look straight forward. And that word has to do with this being laid bare, being open, having to forcefully look at the one with whom we have to give an account. And the Hebrew writer says, this is the reality. This is the human condition. Our lives are exposed. Now we may think we can hide things. We may think that we can do things in secret behind closed door in the darkness and no one will find out. But the truth is all things are exposed before God. He is aware of everything. Completely aware. But folks, this is good news because the heart of our father is to provide covering for his children. He sees us in our nakedness, in our shame, and he wants, his heart is, to provide covering. Why? Because God knows the intent of our heart. Look back at Genesis chapter 8 in verse 20. It tells us that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now that's an interesting way to put things, Lord. I will not curse the ground. Why? Because man's heart is evil. Well, that's a good reason, in my opinion, to curse the ground. Because man's heart is evil. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, that's the exact reason that God gives for flooding the world in the first place. He comes to Noah and he says, hey, the the intent of man's heart is only evil always. Therefore, I'm going to flood the world. And now after the flood, God comes around and says, hey, the intent of man's heart is still only evil always, but I'm not going to flood the world. Why not, Father? And Noah does something interesting there. He sacrifices. And God is reminded... God sees the sacrifice And in the context of that Says yes Man's heart is evil There is evil intent But I will provide A covering I will provide a covering Now before we get to that covering We're going to look at the last story In Noah's life If I were writing a biography Of my own life This is not the type of story I would have wanted to end on Noah did so well He was doing so great A man of righteousness The Bible tells us Noah found grace In the eyes of the Lord the only righteous man. He and his family saved from the flood. And this is the last story we get to hear from good old Noah. Look again at verse 20 of Genesis 9. Tell you what, while you're looking there, I'm going to just pray for a moment. Father, as we get into this and, and look at this story, I pray that you will apply our eyes not to Noah and not to his sons, but to ourselves. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves in this story, to understand where we fit in the scheme of things. Make us, Father, aware of how we relate to the behavior of Noah, to the behavior of Ham, to the behavior of Shem and Japheth. And, Father, teach us through these things to live better for you and be more aware of our covering. Lord, I pray that you would speak your words and that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, guide us in this study. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis 9.20, again, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, how does this happen? How does this man of righteousness who had held on so long... I mean, think about it. All of the time he was building the ark, he was under intense persecution. People laughing, making fun of him, mocking him. And then he finally builds the ark and now he has to go into it and he's in an intense storm. For a very long period of time. And Noah's dealing with all of this stuff. And now the storm's over. And the hard times are behind him. And good old Noah settles in. It's actually not surprising that Noah becomes a farmer. The word translated farmer here is literally man of the soil. And apparently this man of the soil had had about enough of the ocean. So Noah, in his ease and leisure, begins to do a little wine tasting. Just hanging out, Relaxing. And see if this doesn't sound familiar to your life, it does to mine. I'm going to give you three ways that we are similar to Noah and his boys. The first one is like Noah, we tend to ease in to sin. We tend to ease in to sin. It's rare that a person will just dive off the diving board into the pool of, of sin just saying, Yahoo! I'm going to destroy my life! This is great! Very few people do that. We get to that point. But we ease into sin. I was working on this message and just kind of studying um, on Friday. And I was sitting down in the house over here. And I looked out of the, the window of the front door. And something just caught my attention. And I noticed two of the horses that live here on the Gilmore's farm, Coco and Kizzy. Coco and Kizzy had come over to this side of the hill. And Coco was just starting to lie down. Which is very interesting. Horses lying down. And, you know, if you've ever seen a horse lie down, they've got to do it carefully because those are big animals. And they're quite a ways off the ground. So Coco just eases down and lies down on the ground. And at first I thought, oh, what a beautiful picture of peace. And then Kizzy did the same thing. And as soon as they were down there, eased down into the ground, they just started rolling around and the dirt was flying up and the manure was out. I'm going, that's gross. Those are a couple of nasty horses. Somebody clean them up and get them out of here. What's going on here? This is, it was such a perfect picture of exactly what we do with sin. We ease into it and end up rolling around in the mire and the muck and the manure. We ease into sin not realizing what we're doing, making ourselves filthy, sipping the wine of well-being, and we never intend to be overtaken by drunkenness. No one ever means to get drunk. You've seen the commercials. No one ever intends to become a drug addict. No one ever goes out with intent to murder. No child says, Well, oh, I want to grow up to live on death row, you know, for the last <laughs> few years of my life. But we tend to ease to sin. Flip in your Bibles to Proverbs 23. It's a great passage. Proverbs 23. We'll be looking at verse 31. Proverbs 23, verse 31. I love the wisdom of Solomon here. And he writes about this very thing. And and don't don't get distracted. He's going to talk about wine, but it is a picture of a much greater evil, and that is sin. Sin. Now listen to this. Proverbs 23, verse 31. Solomon says, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. That could almost be a commercial. <laughs> he says in verse 32, At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Verse 33. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter, utter perverse things. Now Listen. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Or like one who lies down at the top of a mast. At the top of a mast? What's he talking about? Well, what's at the top of the mast? A lookout. At the top of the mast is the place of looking out. It's the place of watching. And what Solomon is saying here is if you get tangled up in these things, if you go down that path of ease that ends up rolling around in sin, you are like one who lies down in the middle of the sea who falls asleep at the watch post. You fall asleep at the lookout. The very place where a sailor is supposed to keep watch, Solomon says, as you ease into sin, you lose your focus. And you fall asleep at the watch. Now, there's nothing wrong with rest and ease. But the trouble with Noah is that he sinned when he had that peaceful, easy feeling. I mean, it was at that point that Noah relaxed, the world was good, everything was peaceful, and he stopped worrying about it. He stopped thinking about it. He gave up diligence and settled back, eased back into sin. Now, there's nothing wrong with rest, nothing wrong with peace, but it all depends on where you get your peace from. Hebrews 4, verse 9 tells us that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. It's peaceful diligence. I was talking to Hayden in the car the other day. We are listening to the radio. And before we got to school... On the radio, they were talking about President Bush's address to America's mayors. And he was talking to them about, you know, the funding and about making sure that police officers and their firemen and everybody were prepared in case of terrorist attack. And Hayden was listening. And he spoke up from the back seat and he said, Dad, policemen and firemen have to be ready all the time, don't they? And I said, yeah, that's right, they do. They have to be ready at a moment's notice. They have to be alert. That's peaceful diligence. We want to live in peacetime, but at the same time, while we live in peace, we need to live diligently. Now, I know I talk about this a lot, but I'm going to keep talking about it until Jesus comes. Noah's problem is this. He left the window of watching. You may remember last week we talked about how Noah stood at the window waiting for the dove, watching for the dove, looking for the dove to return to him. But at this point he has now left the window of watching. He's no longer waiting for the Father. He's not waiting for a sign. He's not waiting for anything. Noah stopped watching and waiting for the Lord's return. First Peter 1.13 tells us the following Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5:9, listen, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, you want to give comfort You want to give words of encouragement to other believers around you? Here's how you do it. You talk about Jesus coming. You talk about his return. You focus. You get up to the top of the Mass, and you stand in the lookout, and you watch for his coming. Do you want to live a life that is invigorated for the Lord? I mean, seriously, folks, how many Christians are falling asleep at the Mass? How many Christians are not watching because, you know, it's just from one Sunday to the next, to the next Bible study? And the Lord's saying, Hey, I have given you something that will help you feel both peace and diligence. You're not destined for wrath. And I am returning. And if you will focus on these things, it'll encourage you, it'll build you up, it'll give you comfort. Well, Noah stops watching. He drops his guard along with his pants and along comes his son. (laughs) Verse 22 of Genesis 9. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father... And told his two brothers outside. Let's get down to verse 24. It tells us that when Noah awoke from his wine hungover, I just added that, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now listen to those two verses together again. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now there is some indication in Scripture of something very, very wrong here. First of all, Noah, when he uncovered himself inside his tent, that word "uncovered" implies an immoral decision. It wasn't just that Noah was stumbling around drunk and, and his cloak fell off and he fell to the ground. It was like, oh no, naked man. That's not what happened here. There was an intent on Noah's part to unrobe, to uncover himself. There was an immoral intent on his part. Now along comes Ham and somehow or other it looks like Ham is involved. It's not just that he was walking by the tent door and went, Oh, Dad, put on a shirt, something. It wasn't bad at all. The word saw implies looking at with pleasure, gazing with a longing. Kind of gross. And of course, verse 24 tells us that Noah realized his youngest son had done something to him. There's more than watching going on here. But what's the primary problem? Because we can spend a lot of time trying to focus on on Ham's sin and Noah's sin and and what was the really ugly, bad thing going on here. But the primary problem, the Bible doesn't get into that because there's something else that that the Lord wants us to see here, I think, very clearly. It's not just that Ham accidentally walked in on drunken, naked (laughs) dad. It's not just that he might have been involved in something sick and perverse. The real problem is not perversion. The real problem is diversion. Ham's problem is a problem of diversion. And folks, this is where we tend to be similar to Ham. We tend to divert attention from our sin. We tend to divert attention from our sin. Ham points out the shame of his own father to his brothers to his own shame. Ham goes outside and grabs his brother and says, you're not going to believe what I just saw. Oh, this is great. Dad is drunk, and he's naked, and it's terrible. And I just, this is unbelievable. And we went by, you know, Dad was such a righteous guy. Check him out, he's in there. And, And Ham is throwing the whole thing off of himself. Look at Dad, look at his sin. It's funny, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. The Lord came to Adam and said, hey, what's going on? And Adam goes, the woman made me do it. It was her. In fact, it wasn't just the woman. It was the woman that you gave me, Lord. And then he goes to Eve. Eve, what's the deal? The serpent. It was the serpent. It was all the serpent. We tend to divert attention from our sin. Proverbs 17.9 tells us the following. He who covers the transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. He who repeats a matter separates friends. Now think about this. How often do you and I ham it up? How often are we exactly like him? Exposing the sin of others. We call it concern. You know, sometimes a prayer request. Listen, you need to pray for so-and-so. Let me tell you why. It's really bad. Sometimes we call it accountability. Well, I'm just trying to keep him accountable. You know what? I am all about accountability. Accountability. But accountability, especially between believers, is a relationship that is based in love, not judgment. The whole idea of accountability is that you get with a Christian brother or sister and you encourage them. You build them up. And if they stumble, if they fall, you don't go around proclaiming it so that they'll learn from it. You go to them and love them through it. That's the whole point of accountability. I love you enough to walk beside you, to encourage you, to bear you up. And yes, even to cover you when you're ashamed. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. And I absolutely believe, folks, if it weren't for our human tendency to divert attention from our own sin, to bring out other people's sin, accountability would be a lot easier thing in our lives. In fact, this verse where James says, confess your sins to one another, would be a whole lot easier, because we wouldn't be so concerned that if I confess my sins to Harlan, Man, what if I tell him what's really going on in my life? Can I trust him? I hope so. But what if he, even well-meaning, tells someone else to pray for me? What if it gets out? Here's the good news about it getting out. We're all uncovered and naked anyway. It's out there anyway. All the stuff that we think we keep inside, it's already out. Not only does the Father know everything that's going on, but most of you around know everything that's going on as well. We think we're hiding stuff so well. We're not. But listen to this. If you have been hurt by another person, or if you've been the cause of pain for another person, how in the world can healing come from confession? Because that's what James says. Confess your sins one to another, and you will be healed, or so that you may be healed. Well, that brings us to the third point, and it's this. Though we tend... To ease into sin. And like Ham, we tend to divert attention from our sin. Like Shem and Japheth, we mend when we join in to cover sin. We mend when we join in to cover sin. Look at verse 23. This is a great, great verse of honor. Genesis 9, 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away. So that they did not see their father's nakedness. An act of grace, an act of honor. And folks, for all of our tendencies to ease into shame, into sin, and to divert attention from our own shame, God created in us something marvelous. God created in us, as we're made in His image, the capacity for grace. He has made inside of each one of us the capacity for grace. The capacity for forgiveness. To be able to love and to forgive. I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but the church I grew up in, when it had only been a couple or three years old, went through a pretty bad split. And my parents who had started that church were on one end and some of their very close friends were on the other side and the the friendship was shattered, was destroyed. And it was some 15, I guess 20, 20 years later that one of the couples that were their best friends actually came back to the church and sought forgiveness now my parents on their part immediately forgave them and now that man is one of the elders in that church and that relationship is completely restored it's mended why? because somebody had the capacity for grace the capacity to forgive the ability to continue to forgive over and over and over 70 times 7 the Lord said you keep forgiving when do I stop forgiving? never never You never stop forgiving. Why? Because forgiveness is covering. And God has given us the capacity like Shem and like Japheth to cover the sins of others around us. Not to blurt it out to the world like Ham, but like Shem and Japheth, to cover sin. Back to Proverbs 17.9 that says that he who repeats a matter separates friends. Listen to the first part of that verse. He who covers a transgression seeks love. The word seeks is probably better translated procures or obtains. He who covers a transgression obtains love. Bottom line, if you seek to cover the sins of others rather than expose them, the Bible tells us you will obtain love. You'll obtain love. Listen to this verse, Hebrews or Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Listen to those again. All wrath. And anger, and clamor, and slander, be put away with all malice. These all have to do with exposing the sin of others. All of them. Anger, he hurt me. I'm going to tell people about it. Malice, oh, I'm going to get him for that. Clamor, slander, it all has to do with exposing the sins of others. And Paul says, put that away. Get rid of that. And instead, Paul advises, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. How? How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Same way that God forgave you. We mend when we join in to cover sin. When we join the Father in covering sin of those around us. Proverbs 10 verse 12. Tells us that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love covers all transgressions. And in a like verse, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, Peter says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Now listen to this verse. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Whose sins? Now think carefully about this. I don't know about you, but for me, every time I used to hear that verse, Love covers a multitude of sins, I thought, great. If I can love people, the multitude of my sins will be covered. God will forgive me if I'm forgiving other people. He will love and cover me if I'm loving and covering other people. Guess what? That's not what the verse says. It says love covers a multitude of sins. The verse is not saying that love will cover your sins. It is talking about covering other people's sins. That's what love does. Love seeks to cover, or in Jesus' case, to atone for the sins of other people. It's not about trying to do things so that you can be saved. The wonderful thing about God's grace is once you got it, you got it. Once you're saved, you're saved. Once you've given your life to the Father and He has you in His hand, John John says that, that Jesus said in John, that the Father has you in His hand. That no one can snatch you out of the hand of of the Father. So once once you have this thing called salvation, what Jesus would say is stop working for it. And start working for the salvation of others. Start loving for the sake of others. Start covering, not to protect yourself, but to protect others. What did Shem and Japheth get out of covering Noah? They didn't do it for any specific reason except that they knew their father was in a moment of shame. And he needed covering. And they loved him and covered him. Covering is exactly what the Father's provided us. First John chapter one, verse eight tells us. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, before any of us start to judge Noah, or even Ham too harshly, remember that we're all in the same boat. We're all in Noah's boat. The question is not whether or not you and I sin. That's an undisputed fact. We do. The question is, who's got you covered? Who's got you covered? Well, this brings us back to the very beginning. I said that everything is naked and laid bare before the Father, to whom we have to give an account. So how do we deal with all that? Psalm 32, verse 1 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now watch what God does. And this is great. What God does with your sin when he gets a hold of it. When you give your life to the Father, you turn around and say, Lord, I want you to take it. I can't take it anymore. And you hand it over to God. Job chapter 14 verse 17 says the following. My transgression is sealed up in a bag. And you wrap up my iniquity. He takes all that stuff That gunk of our lives Puts it in a bag Wraps it up tight Ties it off And then what does he do to it Turning your Bibles To the book of Micah Toward the end of the Old Testament Micah chapter 7 God's got that bag of your sin In his hands He's taken it He's pulled it He's filled it up in the bag He's tied it off And now he's got this bag What does he do with it Micah chapter 7 verse 18 the prophet says who is a God like you who pardons iniquity who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love he will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot so the second thing God does is he takes that bag of sin and he stomps all over it he walks on it he flattens it But it goes on. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now, scientists today say that the sea is some five miles deep. And in the deepest parts of the sea, it's nothing but blackness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you could handle being down there under all that pressure. There's tremendous pressure. There's darkness. It's far, far away. And that's where the sin goes. Figuratively. The point is, when Micah wrote this, they thought the sea was endless. They thought its depths were unfathomable. And so to say your, your sins are at the bottom of the sea is to say, you can't get them anymore. They're gone. They're covered. And even if you could take a little submarine down there, you wouldn't be able to see them anyway. That's what God does with our sins. Bags them up, puts them in the bottom of the sea where nobody can find them again. Talk about covered. The Lord covers. And we all need a covering. Now, some of you Bible students might have noticed something and might be catching me on something here. Read verse 20 of Micah chapter 7. It says, You will give truth to Jacob, an unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. And suddenly we realize that the sins in the bottom of the sea thing, it's for the Jews. It's not for us. It's not a prophecy for us. So great. The Jewish people, they get their sins at the bottom of the sea. What about mine? How do I figure into this? What happens? Flip back now to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 24. It tells us when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth." and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Folks, we discover in this verse where our covering comes from, that there is a connection with Israel, a connection with the Jewish people right here in this prophecy. See, what happens here, and this is something so easy to miss, Noah doesn't wake up hungover and start to rant and rave just because he's got a bad headache. Noah wakes up and begins to prophesy That these three verses at the end of chapter 9 Are verses of prophecy They are words of prophecy How do you know? How do you know that? Well verse 25 Noah says curse be Canaan Well Canaan didn't go in and see his father naked Ham did Canaan was Ham's fourth son So Noah You might think well maybe he's just still a little out of it So he's cursing Canaan But he means to curse Ham And he says curse be Canaan or whoever was in here. Whatever that guy was. Curse be him. Curses. <laughs> but it wasn't a curse for him. It was a curse for Canaan. Why? Because the Canaanites would prove in history to be the most heinous, the most murderous, the most sick and perverted people on the face of the planet. And here Noah delivers a prophetic curse. From God Himself. God knew what Canaan would become. The fourth child of, of Ham, His people, ultimately, the people who lived in the land of Canaan. Canaan's land. That God ultimately brought the Jews into. And you may recall, if you know any Old Testament history, that God brought the Jews into Canaan's land and said, Wipe them out. Destroy them. Kill everything man, woman, child, beast. And we go, Wow, the God of the Old Testament sure is, you know, judgmental <laughs> at best. I mean, he's, he's bloodthirsty, isn't he? And we miss the fact that for 400 years, Canaan had an opportunity to repent and turn around. But this curse through Noah was a foreshadowing of what God knew was going to happen. That this people group was going to mess it up severely and would need to be dealt with. So curse be Canaan, a servant of servants. But it's not just a prophecy against the Canaanites. Stay with me here at the end. It is a prophecy for the Shemitic people. Verse 26 tells us, that God, Noah also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. The Shemitic people, folks, are the Semitic people, the Jewish people. You've heard of anti Semitism, anti people of the Semitic history, the Shemites. It is a prophecy for them. Now, the, the name Shem actually means glory. And these people, the Shemitic, the Semitic people, would be known as God's people, the Jews, where God would show forth his glory in the world. And he has in the past, and he will again in the future. So it's a prophecy for the Shemitic people, but it's also a prophecy for Japheth. Japheth, whose name means ruler. Check this out. Japheth and his people headed west and settled in Europe and they would indeed have rule in the last days when this prophecy would get its complete fulfillment because the people of Japheth eventually became the Europeans who eventually sailed on ships to America who eventually now live, we live in the greatest country in the history of the world as far as world rule Japheth means ruler yes in fact it does a prophecy even for this point in time but there's something interesting and this is what we get back to in our covering Verse 27 tells us, May God enlarge Japheth. So at that point you're thinking, Okay, so Japheth is going to be the greatest of the sons, right? He says, And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let him live in Shem's tents. Let him be covered by the covering of Shem. Great, Rick, what does that mean? Bottom line is this, folks. Jesus was a Shemite. Jesus came of the line of Shem, from Adam to Seth, to Noah to Shem, all the way down to a man named Abraham, and 2,000 years later to a man named Jesus. Jesus was of the line of Shem, a Shemite, a Jew. And Jesus is our covering today. The tents of Shem that Japheth and his people were prophesied to be able to dwell in. The tents of Shem, literally that means the tents of glory. That Japheth, the people of Japheth, the, the outsiders, those who are not Jews, would one day live covered in the tents of glory. And John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, pitched his tent among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 1:16 tells us, for of his fullness we have all received. We have all received grace upon grace upon grace that we have a covering oh, oh we need a covering yeah we do all of us but folks listen in those moments when you know you're blowing it when you know you have eased into sin when you're rolling around in it when you you begin to think well I've got to get this sin off of me instead of diverting attention to somebody else instead of pointing the finger at the person who got you there in the first place stop for a moment and pull a Shem and Japheth Think about where you dwell. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you dwell in the tents of Shem. That's where you live. Covered by the grace of Jesus. Covered completely.